To be connected to a royal family is no small privilege. The best of everything, food, education, housing, travel, every opportunity afforded to them. With so much wealth and wasta, one would expect perhaps to be untouchable in the best sense of that word. Well, thousands of years ago, the ruler in Egypt, who was called the Pharaoh, the word literally means a great house. It certainly was a great house. Unlike any other kingdom at that time, no one would have dared to challenge Pharaoh. And so, it was no small thing when the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 4, 21-23, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. Can you imagine saying something like that to the powerful, most powerful man in the world? Well, at their first encounter in Exodus 5, 2, Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. And then he increased the Israel's, Israelite slaves' workload, making things harder on them. God told Moses, again, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though, I, and though I multiply signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. <laughs> Through nine powerful plagues of God's justice and judgment, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And God also hardened Pharaoh's heart. But for his last act, his last mighty act, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh then said, get out of my sight. He did not want to listen to Moses again with a final blow. A plague of death to kill all the firstborn males who were unprotected from the blood of a Passover lamb. This was God's final mighty act in Egypt to display his power and make his name known. And it also foreshadowed Christ 
as God's ultimate Passover lamb, saving from death those who would be protected by the blood of his cross. God had a plan, you see. God's plan then and now, from Genesis to Revelation, God has a plan. In Romans, Paul explains God's plan that by God's grace through faith in God's sacrificial lamb, sinners are saved from death and reconciled to their creator. Last week, in Romans 9, 1 to 13, we talked about feeling the pain in God's plan. And we talked about how Jesus felt pain as he bore the wrath of God on the cross. Paul felt pain because many Jews were missing out on God's love in Christ Jesus. And we too, we feel pain. We feel pain for the lost who do not know Christ. I know some, as we wrestle with this doctrine, feel pain, thinking that God elects people to salvation, that he has a purpose in election, that it is not by works, but by him who calls. It can be painful to think about that Doctrine. Well, next week's sermon, we're going to focus in much more detail on how election, that is God's choosing us, fits with human will, human responsibility. This is a beautiful and a difficult doctrine. And I know many are wrestling with this doctrine, much like Jacob wrestled with the angel uh, in, in that night where he was called Israel. I know some, for some this doctrine feels harsh. It feels like it's, can it really be just? Well, you know, Paul anticipated this response. And we're picking up in Romans 9, 14 through 29 with his question. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? And his answer? Not at all. He is not unjust. Our main point today. God is just in showing mercy to those he chooses. God is just in showing mercy to those he chooses. First, we'll look at God's purpose in showing mercy or hardening. Showing mercy or hardening. God's purpose. Secondly, we'll look at God's right as the creator to do so. And then thirdly, God's glory in calling both Jews and Gentiles to himself. So God's purpose in showing mercy and hardening. First first point. God has a plan. God has purpose in everything that he does. 
Paul, Paul begins this answer in, in, in 9.15 about the justness of God in election, quoting God's words with Moses in Exodus 33. These are the, the words from that chapter. He, he is saying that, that this right... He's saying this right after Israel had committed the sins with the golden calf. We talked about that last week. Moses, standing on the mountain with God, asked God to see his glory. Show me your glory. And he also was asking that God would allow his presence to go with the people, to be among the people Israel. So God replies, as you see, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God speaks of his sovereign will and power in revealing his character as a God of mercy and compassion. He's saying that he decides how and to whom he will be merciful. Mercy you see, is not random. Nor can it be for all people. God's character of mercy must abide alongside His character of justice. He is both just and merciful. And God has a purpose in how He shows mercy. He plans mercy. He, he does show Moses his presence. And he gives Israel a way. Through the tabernacle and the sacrifices, he gives them a way that his presence may be among them. These, these acts of mercy into Israel point towards his mercy in election. God's purpose in showing mercy is in harmony with his purpose in election. Remember, God's promises come to those he chooses, according to verse 11, that it's not by works, but by him who calls. And Paul continues here in verse 16, saying, It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. It's not on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Our natural tendency, you see, as sinners is not towards God. That's not natural. Our, our natural tendency is away from God. And Paul has already confirmed back in chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, he says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. If we are to move towards God, it's because in mercy, he draws us to himself. And, and Jesus said the same back in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. People, you see, won't turn to God by their own desire, by their own effort. They can't believe in God unless 
He gives them a heart to follow him. In Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God says, I will do these things. And this is how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the fathers of the faith, that's how they came to follow God. It's how Moses came to follow God. They They didn't just look after and seek God. God called them to himself. God reveals himself to whoever he chooses. And it's not because of their works, not human desire or effort. He calls them because of his mercy. Now, you may wonder, well, what about Pharaoh? God revealed himself to Pharaoh in powerful ways. And yet he did not turn to God. What about him? Well, here Paul also says, God has a purpose in hardening hearts. A hard heart is a heart that does not respond rightly to God's word. In verse 17, Paul quotes Exodus 9:16, where God reveals his purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart. I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, God had told Abraham back in Genesis 15 that his descendants would be enslaved and mistreated in Egypt for 400 years. I mean, one thing we learned from that is that God has a purpose in suffering also. But God promised to bring them out of Egypt by his own power. God called Moses sent him to Egypt so that God could accomplish his purposes for Israel. And to do that, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In fact, in these chapters, 11 chapters between Exodus 4 and 14, it talks about God and Pharaoh hardening Pharaoh's heart 40 times. If Pharaoh had a soft heart to God, would God's power have been displayed? Well, as it happened, God's name was proclaimed in all the earth. In the land of Israel, the one that that Israel was to return to, the promised land, it was said by the people living there, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. We've heard. 
And centuries after the fact, King David prayed, There's no one like you, Lord. And there is no God but you. And as we have heard with our own ears, who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whose God went out to redeem a people for himself. And to make a name for yourself. And to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations before your people. A nation whom you redeemed from Egypt. You know, in a similar way, in Jesus' day, God hardened the hearts of Judas and the Jewish leadership. Think about that. Judas walked with Jesus for three years. He touched him. He he spoke with him. The leaders heard his teaching. They saw his miracles. And yet together, Judas and the Jewish leaders plotted against the Messiah. And their plans brought about God's plan that Jesus would become the ultimate sacrifice of atonement for our sins. God had a plan. You know, in this, God says that they were responsible for their actions. Judas and the Jewish leaders. Though they heard God's word from Jesus himself, though they saw him and touched him, they did not believe. John 12, 39 and 40 testifies. They could not believe because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts So they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn. And I would heal them. And Jesus says of Judas, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. In the scripture, we find two things that are difficult for our finite minds to put together. One, that God is absolutely sovereign in showing mercy to those he chooses. And two, that people are fully responsible for their sinful actions and choices. Within God's sovereign plan, your thoughts, behaviors, and actions still matter. Your choices reflect what you believe in your heart. Look at your life. Look at your thinking, your actions. What do they say about what you believe? Like a catalyst in the chemicals, you see, God's word exposes what's in our heart.
Charles Spurgeon once said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. God has a purpose in showing mercy and in hardening whoever he chooses. Now naturally this raises questions which Paul puts forward in verse 19. He anticipates these very questions. Well then, why does God still blame us? Who can resist his will? And really that's a question of fairness. Is God fair? Let's consider Paul's reply in verses 19 and 20. That it is God's right as creator. Paul responds with the godness of God, actually. There in in verses 20 and 21, he says, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? What shall the... Shall shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Paul doesn't necessarily answer these two questions. They, They are in many ways rhetorical. But Paul is content knowing what God has revealed about himself as the one who elects, shows mercy, and saves those he calls. Paul also understands that people are responsible for the decisions they make. That we're not puppets. We're not robots. You know, we've all been made in God's image to fill the earth with the glory of God. And each person does so in unique ways. We are all, we are all connected to the same lump of clay. We all have dignity, value, worth. No matter who we are, where we are, what we believe. We all are God's image bearers. And God is free to make of us from this human DNA that makes all of us. He is free to make of us what He desires. Special or common. Objects for wrath or objects for mercy, people receiving destruction or those receiving the riches of God's glory. It's God's right, not ours. He, how he chooses this, it's a mystery, a mystery in the mind of God. But what we know, oh, and hear me, church, what we know is that he is just, he is loving, he is right, and he is good in all his judgments. That is who God is. When Job 
thought about the difficulty of facing God's sovereign will, this is how he responded. He said, how then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. God is just and fair in showing mercy because he is God and we are not. I know, I know that that may sound harsh. But friends, the truth that we don't like doesn't make it any less true. Sometimes the most difficult pill for us to swallow are the ones that provide the greatest benefit. Four thoughts in application. First, be careful in sitting as judge over the judge. Be careful in judging the judge. We are small. We are finite before an infinite God of the universe. We are little. We're so little. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 5 2, he says, Do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Secondly, be careful about judging God's creatures. Be careful about judging God's creatures. His fingerprints are on every human being, every person on the earth. And for this reason, hatred among humans is horrible to God. God hates human hatreds based on anything, race, color, gender, class, social or economic status, or any other discriminating factor. God hates it. There are no external features that distinguish God's chosen ones from others. None. God calls people from all nations and all backgrounds. So beware of a narrow view in who God calls to himself. Number three. Oh, friends, cry out for God's mercy. Cry out for God's mercy. God's mercy doesn't depend on our desire or effort. So then pray for mercy. If you're not a believer, if you don't know his mercy, then cry out for mercy. And believers, pray. Pray. Pray for your parents to know Christ. Pray for your children to know Christ. Pray for siblings, your friends. Pray for those who oppose you and oppress you. 
to know Christ. Pray that the Prince of Peace, who promises to pull out hard hearts and replace them with hearts of flesh, pray that He will transform your loved ones and even your enemies. Pray. Fourth, believers, rest in God's mercy. Rest in God's mercy. If you have believed in and confessed Christ as Lord, then that means that God's purpose from the beginning of creation was to adopt you as his own child. No one can separate you from his love. No one can snatch you out of his hand. His affections, my dear brothers and sisters, are set on you. The affections of the God of the universe are set on you. So trust him. Trust him as he works in your life and even through the situations of your life. All right. And coming now to verses 22 to 29. Paul returns his thoughts on God's glory in calling Jews and Gentiles. Let's consider this third point now. In verse 22 to 24, Paul asks two questions that he doesn't answer. He intends the reader to to look back, to reflect back on verses 20 and 21. And that God is sovereign to make of the same substance objects for his own purposes. Okay? That's what's here. Verse 22 focuses on God's patience with the objects of his wrath. What if God bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. This could mean that he is patient with their wickedness until they repent. Or it could mean that he's patient with them until he displays his glory and power on the day of judgment. It could be either one. Verse 23, though, tells us The reason for his patience. And that is his desire to make known to the objects of his mercy, his glory. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for? God wants us to know His great mercy. I was speaking with someone earlier this week and saying that it's it's against the, the black backdrop that we see the brilliant colors of God's mercy. Now Paul turns in verse 24 to 29 to several of the prophets' testimonies about God's working through history. 
to reveal the true people of God. And first, in verse 25 and 26, Paul shows from the prophet Hosea that the Gentiles, who were not his people, who were not his loved ones, will now be called the children of God, the children of the living God. And then in verses 27 to 29, Paul shows from Isaiah that Though the number of the physical descendants of the Israelites would be like the sand on the sea, only a remnant, that is a small number, only a remnant will be saved. As he said before in verse 6, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. You see, God is working throughout history. Throughout history, biblical history and even modern history, to call a people to be his own. And to do this, he must choose some and reject others. But in this, we must remember that all people are subject to God's judgment because in Adam, we all have already. We all have. You see, that's our natural state before our Creator. Following our forefather Adam, we lived in sin and rebellion against God and God's Word. And God said to Adam, the penalty of such sin is death. But God had a plan. God had a plan. Through Israel, He revealed His character of grace and and justice to Moses. Remember, he proclaimed his name. He said, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He goes on to say, Punishing the sins to the third and fourth generation. Maintaining love to thousands. And yet punishing to the third and fourth generation. God is overwhelming in love and mercy. It's his heart. Through his covenants and law, God showed that forgiveness is possible. Through a substitute in death. But such a plan would require a perfect lamb. A perfect sacrifice. And so God sent his one and only son. To bear in himself the sting of death for all who would believe. The sting of death is sin. And Jesus took all its poison on the cross in Himself. There, Jesus claimed the death of death in His death on the cross. Rising from the grave, He displayed God's power in an ultimate victory. Now God calls out to His children to repent and believe. And to worship Him in spirit and in truth. 
through this message of good news that we now proclaim, this gospel, he is calling. He is calling to you to believe, to repent. Oh, sinner, do you hear him calling? Do you hear him calling? He's calling to you now through this message. Believe in Christ and receive the benefits of his death and resurrection. John 1, 12 and 13 says, To all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Children who are born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. He goes, his call, his call goes wide. It goes far. As Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called. Oh, but friends, few are chosen. Your response of true faith and submission will show if you are chosen of God. If you are a child of the living God, how will you respond? That is what's important. But sadly, many hear this call and they don't respond. In his own call to those who would be his disciples, Jesus said, and I am saying it to you, enter through the narrow gate. Oh, sinner, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through that. But small is the gate. And narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. Was God unjust in all this? No. Our natural bend is away from God. Natural bend is to rebel against His call, His word. And His word is going out now. Think on justice. Think about the justness of God. And you will see that, that no one deserves God's favor. No one. He gives mercy to the undeserving. Like me. Like you. Is God unfair? No. It's not unfair. All of us have turned in rebellion against our Creator. When the objects of His wrath receive judgment, they get exactly what they deserve. Exactly what is fair. But in God's mercy, His innocent Son was judged guilty. His innocent son was judged guilty. While we, we, the guilty, walk free. 
What's unfair is that God took upon himself what belongs to the objects of his mercy. He took the wrath that belonged to me, that belongs to you. He took it in himself. And before Israel went into exile, God told the prophet Hosea to display God's love for Israel in a unique yet horrifying way. If you've not read the prophet Hosea, I want to say read Hosea, at least the first three chapters. Can you imagine God telling you to marry a partner that you knew was unfaithful? That you knew was a prostitute? Can you imagine God telling you to do that? Even after having children with her, Hosea's wife left him to become a prostitute. Hosea literally had to buy back his wife, his own wife, out of prostitution. The image of Hosea's family, you see, became a picture of God's redeeming love for his chosen ones. In Hosea, the Lord declares, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness, in justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. Those children who were formerly, we, we, who were formerly called not his children became his children. We, formerly not loved, became his loved ones. Believer, you were once not loved, but now you are God's loved one. You once were not God's people, church, but now we are children of the living God. All we who believe in this room are Gentiles. To my knowledge, we don't have any Jews here. We are Gentiles whom God has called to be his people, the objects of his mercy. The recipients of his redeeming love and participants in God's great salvation plan. For you, brothers and sisters, God has prepared in advance the riches of his glory. And he longs to share them with you. Oh, church, ponder this week. How God is just in showing mercy to those whom he chooses. And what this means in assuring your great salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father. This beautiful and difficult doctrine. It's so hard for us to understand and and make sense of how you are both sovereign in your call and yet we are responsible 
in our actions and choices. Lord, what we hear is that as we come to faith, You have prepared in advance the glory that You long to see show to the objects of Your mercy. We, Lord, are those in faith are the recipients of Your mercy. And we pray, Lord, we know that there are those among us who have not received this mercy. We know, Lord, that there are those in our families who do not know Your Son. And so we pray. We cry out for mercy. Oh God, save. Oh Lord, reveal Yourself in a way. Lord, draw them to Yourself. For You said, Jesus, no one will come to Me unless the Father draws them. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.